podcast app. You see, there's a discourse happening. Is this book a masterpiece or problematic? One's a lifelong diehard fan, the other's a first time reader. Both are really smart and funny and attractive. Sweet feathers, sweet feathers. Well, hello and welcome. <laughs> oh, <God>. Technology <laughs> fails us yet again. You know what? You know what? We live and we learn. We and live, we learn. Each day is a gift. Each day is a gift to be broken open like so many hearts. Now, Robert, you sent me a cryptic text message yesterday, I think. You know, I knew you were part partway through the book at this point. Hmm. Heartbreaker, which is, of course, Sweet Valley High number eight, the subject of today's conversation. And you said something to the effect of, and we can of course, go to the original text, but you did something to the effect of if my memory serves me, I'm waiting to have my heart broken. Exactly. And I was. And, you know, we didn't let it get too far past that because we did want to hashtag save it for the pod. But I had, you know, some interpretations and something I was surmising of, of, of what this may mean. And I look forward to kind of hearing from the horse's mouth, as it were, mm. um, how you felt about this book. I'm happy to be that horse today. This so. one was funny. This was a funny one. I mean, not be- that funny. Not ha-ha funny. Oh, funny, interesting? Funny, weird? No, just a little bit off, a little off center. I don't know. Something <laughs> was a little offbeat for me by this one. I don't know. Okay, so we are going to introduce our new segment, which involves us stepping into the Oracle office and inviting you to step in with us. Hear the click-clack of typewriters in the background. So we have been so lucky to hear from many of our listeners out there doing the good work, being our eyes and ears, if you will. And one eye and ear was Instagram user Your Chef V, who clarified for us that tuxedo shirts and tuxedo fashion was huge in the 80s for girls. Collared white shirts with a panel of pin pleats in the chest area, sometimes with a puff sleeve as was the fashion at the time. The bow tie may also have been a lady's bow tie, which is more like a pussy bow, i.e. a softer, floppier style. Tux pants were exactly what you think, though. Black, high-waisted, suiting wool, worn with a belt, pleats in the front. That is what I think. Yeah. The other girls in school would have thought this was cool, but weirdly preppy for Jess. This is 100% a Liz outfit. It wasn't... Yeah, I, all just, I can do is just quote, borrowed it. Just borrowed it from Liz. Am I wrong? Oh, that's true. You're definitely not wrong. That makes sense. Uh, it wasn't everyday sorry. wear, so wearing it to the school event where you want something a little flashier makes sense. So that was. But she wore it the whole day. She wore it the whole day, right? Yeah, she wore it. It was a regular school, day outfit, which is powerfully strange. I don't know what kind of shoes do you think she's wearing with it. Oh, that's a great question. It doesn't, obviously I mean, it doesn't clarify. She's certainly not wearing like shiny black tuxedo shoes. Certainly not. It would be great if she was wearing like a white sneaker. Oh, I would love a white sneaker. Oh, absolutely. Um, like a head. I don't think that's what it was. Okay. 
I think it was Liz's and just borrowed it, right? Because yeah, the reason I think that is because didn't I text you the other day? And this is not a spoiler, but when I was reading book 100, it comes up again. And I'm pretty sure in book 100, and you won't know this, but it's referenced as like Liz's favorite outfit. We're going to move on to another Ioneer. We heard from listener Lizzle49, who pointed out, interestingly enough, her grandmother was in a sorority in high school. Now, that was in the 1940s. Where? Where? Thank you for asking. She went to high school in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood in Baltimore. So quite different than Sweet Valley. I thought this was very interesting. So at least we know of one high school sorority, Lizzle's grandmother in the Baltimore. 40s. Baltimore, okay. Yeah, yeah, Baltimore. Great. Good morning, great. Baltimore. So maybe that's what's happening. <laughs> we heard from Sarah Sweet Valley Traver. I hope I'm saying your last name correctly, Sarah. We've actually been doing quite a bit of messaging and I've really enjoyed it. Um, so we learned a little bit about the publication history. The books were released once a month, always on the first Tuesday of every month which Sarah remembers because she went to the bookstore to get all of them, uh, LOL. Wait, did and, she have the whole collection? Yes. Oh, Sarah has the whole collection plus, plus, plus. Oh, her. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Okay. Got it, got yeah. it, got so it. Yeah. She is a real Sweet Valley head. No, she's legit. Uh, she's legit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Not that we are gatekeepers in any way, shape, or form. If you love Sweet Valley, come on in. You're part of our eyes and ears. Um, but super legit. Uh, and isn't that fun that it's a coincidence that we release our podcasts on Tuesdays and the books were released on Tuesdays. What a fun little moment of the universe telling us, really, we should have a podcast after all. And that's eyes and ears for the week. Thank you, listeners. Yeah, we're so lucky. Uh, shall we move to the topic of conversation? The word on everyone's lips is Mariah Carey's heartbreaker. Or it might be Dionne Warwick's heartbreaker. Or it or might be Pat Benatar's. Heartbreaker. heartbreaker absolutely i was expecting kind of basically what what spoiler alert does happen which is jessica toys with bill's emotions and then ends up falling for him and gets her heart broken when he does not reciprocate i don't think i thought she was heartbroken by him or like became actually emotionally invested in him hmm. i don't think i ever really felt that hmm. um and so this is going to become something wonderful for us to argue about. Uh, So the way that we'll be summarizing the book is each of us gets one sentence and we're going to try to summarize the entire kind of main point of the book in these two sentences. Jessica and Bill are the leads in a play where there's lots and lots of kissing and Jessica is leading Bill on and enjoying his attention. Would be one reading of a completely different tale, which is that (laughs) Bill Chase is struggling with his grief from a lost love and processing it vis-a-vis a relationship with Jessica. He is claiming to be and appears to be by his behavior completely in love with her and quote unquote in over his head. Girl called Dee Dee comes in. She and Bill are surfing together and actually is the one he should be with. And in the end, that is what happens. So is so my... You- summary right you're calling that a sentence mm-hmm. sure w- would i say it's a good sentence yes no. No. would i say it is a run-on sentence yes okay but it did pack most of the plot in there so i will give you that okay great let's get into the title let's do cover first because cover kind of goes into title i know great if you could show me the cover and i can describe it to our listeners and i love when we do it this way because i get to see your surprise and delight Ooh. 
Hello. Hello. So we have on the cover Jessica wearing a spaghetti strap, two-tone. It's either a bikini or a dress. It's green and yellow. It's just barely containing her heaving bosom. I think it's safe safely assume it's a or at least I assume it's a bikini. She's got a hand kind of coyly in her hair that is also touching Bill. She's looking out at the camera or at the viewer with a kind of come hither stare. Bill is behind her wearing a shirt that says Sweet Valley Surf Club, something that is never mentioned in the text. Is it? Is there I don't a sweet? Think so. I don't yeah, think I think so. that that may be made up. One arm behind his head, and Jessica's kind of nestled into the nook that he is creating. So she's kind of in his pit, and he is staring at Jessica as if she is the only person in the world. And there's really nothing else going on. Listener, I know you can't see this, but what you should know is that Pardo has like held up the cover so that I can see it. And then she's just kind of like moving it around. One thing you could do is get it in frame and then just hold it where it was. Well, I want to make sure you don't miss any details. Like you haven't mentioned, for example. Talk to me. You said she was touching him with her one hand. Oh, what exactly is going on here? Oh, thank you actually for moving the cover closer to me. She has a finger crooked. Hooked? Hooked or crooked? By hook or by crook? She's got a finger kind of pulling on. Is he wearing a necklace? Mm -hmm. He's wearing a necklace and she is pulling on it, like pulling him closer. But interestingly, she's not looking at him at all. She is looking at us, the viewer, as if this is a performance of desire rather than actual desire. Unfortunately, I was able to wade my way through your sort of barrage of verbal assaults to enable you to get close enough to the cover to see this crucial detail. You said she was looking at the viewer with a... Come hither? Yeah. I saw it more as... I do believe one of the themes and one of the things going on in this book is after the fallout of Dear Sister Mm -hmm. and everything in the accident, it's just kind of reaffirming her social identity and her identity to herself as like old Jess. Mm -hmm. And part of that is I'm a heartbreaker. And I think it also has to do with like her reaffirming some of her kind of sexual agency and feelings of power after she's had some of these very victimizing experiences Mm -hmm. with guys. So I think her having her finger in the necklace, like she has said things before, like I can lift a finger and get people to do things I want, or like I have them wrapped around my finger. And so Mm -hmm. I think this is representing that she can she can get Bill to do things that she wants. She can get him to orient to her. She can get him to do things. And that's, I think, as we've seen in the past, some of the ways in which she has previously defined power. Mm. What do you think of the his arm up and the sort of like revealing of the pit? It's confusing to me insofar as it's like a kind of a gesture. It could be, we can't see the background. If they were like laying down on a beach towel, and then she's nestled into the pit. I think that might make sense. If they're standing up, it reads very strangely. Yeah, it's, wa- like it's like there's a wall behind yeah. them, I guess. It feel, there's like a leaning vibe where right. he's leaning back and she's leaning on him. Yeah, I could see that reading a couple of ways. Like one, I guess it could be like his sort of, his surfer demeanor is casual. And that's like a, could be yes. considered a very like casual chill stance because he's relaxed. He's sort of leaning against the wall. Lean, lean, way. lean. I could see that being something. Um this is probably an overread. When you're in that posture, you're vulnerable in a way. Mm. And like, in other words, Bill is a non-threatening option for her right now. Mm. His body is open and it's relaxed. I mean, he's like kind of moving, like kind of actually emphasizes his heart. He's like opening his heart. 
in yeah. that gesture. Listener, yeah. feel free to put your arm behind your head and just kind of open <laughs> yeah, up. We- and it this would be a good video clip. Yeah, I don't know that it <laughs> because would. Because we're both practicing. <laughs> there is an opening of the heart and chest. And, and there is a vulnerability there that I actually don't think is an overread. Okay, let's get into the title. There are these taglines on the front and the back. So it's Heartbreaker. And on the back, the tagline is Catch a Wave. Oh. Dot, dot, dot. Huh. Not really related to Heartbreaker, but fine. Is it not? Oy vey. Don't say oy vey. <laughs> okay and this one which clear your schedule okay the front tagline is will jessica break bill's heart comma two question mark in addition to whose heart and here we go oh wow i and actually do go. have a i have a clear schedule so i think there are a couple of ways to take it one of course like most simply on its face is will jessica break bill's heart in addition to the other hearts Jessica has broken, like all of the other boys that she has like taken up with and then discarded like so much Kleenex. Another reading, will Jessica break Bill's heart too? Will Jessica break Bill's heart in the same way that Jessica's heart has been broken? And then there's also like almost a reciprocal reading of it potentially. Like, will Jessica break Bill's heart in the same way that Bill breaks Jessica's heart? Yes. Another reading could be two means, will Jessica break Bill's heart too? The death of Julianne broke Bill's heart. Sure. I think that's I think that's what this is really about. Because that syntax to me implies to say like, mm. will something break something too? Like it just feels more natural that that would mean something else broke Bill's heart. Yeah. Not not like all of these other possibilities are there in directions, I believe. I think they're all coherent. But to me, that feels like the most A natural mm. and be meaningful in terms of what we see in the book because I don't think Jessica really got her heart broken by him and I don't think he like you know what I'm saying like there it is a little interesting the way we're supposed to kind of just suspend disbelief and think like okay Jessica is toying with this kid over and over and over again and and would happily stand in the way of his relationship with Dee Dee if it meant her getting a little more attention that didn't for me feel totally believable the it was interesting i guess is no matter how you read the question will jessica break bill's heart too the answer is no i think that this idea that jessica's toying with him is i i think there's more going on than that when we think back to the description of him i think it was in the last book and it's like he was in his land clothes and instead of a surfboard he was holding books and like on the front of this book we see him in the sweet valley surf club thing and like everyone just sort of refers to him and he's like surf guy that's his whole thing right the entire last book was asking us to challenge these overdrawn stereotypic identities right Mm -hmm. the whole last book was about like it's never that simple jessica's not all this and elizabeth's not the only this right and i think that with bill his relation to jessica is not as simple as everyone's interpreting it as and his like being in love with her like, I would believe that, right? Until chapter three, when we learn about Julianne. Yeah. He, by the way, we were wondering about this whole thing about, because the whole thing about Jessica on the beach with him, and it's like, she tricks him to thinking it's Elizabeth and then kisses Jessica. And it's like, oh, you're in love with me. Like, Jessica reads that as like being about, he's in love with her. But it's like, no, they're interchangeable for him because it's not about either of them. Yeah. He's never in love with either of them. They are a transference from Julianne and they are 
something that is going on for him to work through or not work through his grief. And so I think, yes, on one level, Jessica is toying with him or that's sort of what she's telling herself. And she's the heartbreaker in that way. And she's, I think, trying to reaffirm her social identity and her identity to herself in that way and actually sort of erase and tidy out some of the complications like empathy that started to emerge last time and sort of say, Mm. actually, no, I'm much more comfortable with this. And I think Elizabeth's doing a version of that too. And at the same time, the same way the Robin Wilsons, the, the same way that Jessica and Elizabeth are working through their own issues vis-a-vis their relationships with others, I think Bill's doing the same thing with them. Like, not to say it's no one's, it's not malicious, it's not bad or no. good, it's just, but at the same time, like on the face of it, he's this puppy dog for Jessica. I think in reality, he's entering into a certain type of engagement and a certain type of relationship that's enabling him to actually avoid real some of his real feelings and some of his grief stuff and some of his actual thing which dd ends up kind of bringing out but yeah i think that makes perfect sense to me i think we've gotten pretty far in and we're talking about lots of stuff that we haven't really explained to the listeners at all do you mind actually doing some of that and i'm gonna get some water uh so i have been no she can't hear me um so i've been tasked with kind of giving a bit more of a robust plot summary about the titular got it in there uh the titular heartbreaker we learn in chapter three that Bill, who is a huge surfer guy, had a girlfriend where he used to live in ninth grade. And they met in the surf and they were very much in love. And then she is tragically killed and he is kind of dealing with that. And we actually learned that Julianne, his girlfriend, looked a lot like Jessica and Elizabeth in terms of like, blonde hair, beautiful eyes. I assume, I can only assume a perfect size six body. I mean, how could you love anyone who doesn't have a perfect size six body? So that's kind of the heartbreak that he is dealing with. Meanwhile, that has manifested itself the first time when Jessica asks Bill to a Sadie Hawkins dance and Bill turns her down. And Jessica thinks she's just being rejected. And like, how could somebody possibly not want me when Bill is still grieving the death of Julianne and could not possibly go out with anyone and certainly could not possibly go out with anyone who looked as much like Julianne as Elizabeth and Jessica do. And I think we can actually use that to just tie a little bow on our conversation of the title, which basically I think what we're getting at is who is the heartbreaker? Pardo is muted, but shaking her head very aggressive and angrily. But she's eating, so actually, maybe I could keep talking. I have one more thing on the title, sorry. Robert, what is a breaker in the context of waves and surfing? Great, great. Sometimes I get frustrated with you, and sometimes you just, I'm like, I'm out. And then you reel me back in like so much fish. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that is really, really cool. The idea of like the waves breaking and crashing on the beach. All right, so a breaker is... When a wave approaches shore, the base of the wave encounters the bottom, right? Land. The front of the wave slows down and the back overtakes the front. This forces the water into a peak where the top crest curves forward. We're all familiar with what that looks like. This peak will eventually fall forward in a tumbling rush of foam and water called a breaker. A breaker is a wave with enough energy to break at its peak, reaching a critical level at which linear energy transforms into wave turbulence energy with a distinct forward curve. At this point, simple physical models that describe waves di- wave dynamics often become invalid, particularly those that assume linear behavior. Now, I believe that heartbreaker can also be read as Bill attempting to break or pause, forestall, slow down his grief, 
by engaging in quote-unquote shallow waters, i.e. this relationship with Jessica that is a complete fantasy that is purely based on her resemblance to Julian, where he doesn't actually have to talk to her. He doesn't actually have to access real feelings. And I think that what people are, what everyone around him is describing as him being like head over heels in love with her. And it's not real love. He doesn't have yeah. real feelings for her. The relationship with Jessica breaks his grief in that way. But what we know about grief and like one of the reasons that it's often compared with a wave mm -hmm. um, is because you can't stop it. It's coming. <laughs> And it's powerful. It will overtake you. And the same way, if you're in a tidal wave, if you're in a current, the way to die and get out of breath and drown is to resist it. Mm. And that's how you're going to get tired. And that's how you're going to not make it. The way to survive is to float, to ride it out, or to, as the tagline on in the back of this book says, catch a wave. Oh. And I think what ultimately happens when... In the end, Bill has that moment. Bill has a moment with Dee Dee where he sort of recognizes there's something between them, and the relationship we have he has with her is actually more, you know, authentic than whatever has been going on with Jessica. That's a real moment for him where the things that he's been sort of repressing, he's going to now have to start engaging with. And there's a really beautiful moment when I think he finally kisses Dee Dee, where it says he feels like he was drowning. And mm -hmm. I think that's for two reasons. One is because his engagement with her, because it's authentic and because it's emotionally close, is forcing him to engage with his feelings of grief and loss with Julianne in a way and is going to naturally bring some of that up. And also because feelings of real love are similar to grief in the sense of giving into something that makes you lose control in the sense of being overwhelmed. I think the parallels between grief and the ocean are very clear and make a ton of sense. I do want to tell you that Pat Benatar says your love is like a tidal wave mm. spinning over my head. Drowning in your promises. Better left unsaid. You're the right kind of sinner. Or at least my inner fantasy. The invincible woman. And you know that you were going to be heartbreaker. Right? So Jessica's reaffirming her God-given rule as heartbreaker. And Bill is sublimating himself by going into this tidal wave and sort of absolving his agency the way we've seen Elizabeth do. But I think what's so funny about this is that if Jess and Bill ever got real with each other, they would actually have so much in common because he's dealing with his guilt over Julianne and potentially his role in it. She's dealing with her complex feelings about her potential role in everything with Liz. So Just, let's flip uh, a single page. Jessica purred seductively in Bill's ear. Maybe we can get it right this time. Color flooded Bill Chase's tanned cheeks, turning them a dull brick red. Jessica knew he was really squirming. It was only a rehearsal for the drama club's spring play, but to Bill, it was obviously all too real. Poor Bill, she thought, suppressing a wicked smile. He was madly in love with her. It was too good an opportunity to let pass. I liked the opening insofar as we just left them off making out. In the end of the last book, they're making out on the beach and so mm -hmm. she says again kiss me maybe we can get it right this time and in my head i'm like "Ooh, like maybe they really are falling for each other maybe like they can get their relationship right and then there's this abrupt moment it was only right, rehearsal like, for a drama club school play right so until that point we would be forgiven and i think encouraged to assume yeah. we are still yes. at the beach yeah we are maybe still even in that same beach interaction and so what a shock like 
so much of a pill of cold water on one's head to, <laughs> to learn that this was a rehearsal for a school play. It is, it is not actual romance. It is the simulacrum of romance, perhaps. This is where, listeners, I got off on a wild tangent because they're rehearsing the big love scene from Splendor in the Grass. And so I immediately was like, well, if they're going to name check a play, a famous play, I'm going to have to kind of look it up. And I learned a ton about Splendor in the Grass. Okay. So first off, it is very, to me, and I'm sure an eagled eye, eye or ear out there will set me straight or set me as straight as you can get me. <laughs> Splendor in the Grass isn't a play. Splendor in the Grass is a movie from 1961. It was remade in the early 80s. Splendor in the Grass centers on two teenagers in high school, uh, and it's known as kind of like the big high school romance movie. Uh, the teenagers are Bud and Deanie, and they basically want to get it on. They want to explore the sexual side of their relationship, and their parents tell them not to, so they agree not to do anything. And then Deanie decides she actually does want to do something, so she tries to get Bud to have sex with her, and Bud rebuffs her. That leads to her jumping into a pond like near a waterfall, trying to kill herself. She is rescued and then institutionalized. Bud goes to Yale. Bud's dad loses all of his money in the stock crash of 1929 and then kills himself. Bud's sister dies in a car crash. Deanie ends up with a guy from the institution and Bud's wife stays with Bud, but knows that Bud is always going to be in love with Deanie. The end of the movie is the a Wordsworth quote, though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, glory in the flower, we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind. Yeah, Julianne, grief. Right? We, we can't go back to how things were, but we're not going to grieve. We're going to look at what we are left with and find strength in that. And I think it's just, it's really interesting that they chose this movie to be doing the play of that is so focused on death and grief. And I think that's why when I was reading it, I was expecting more death. I kind of thought Dee Dee was going to die. Like I thought more people were going to mm -hmm. die and there was going to be a real heartbreak. Yeah. A couple of things that are connecting for me here is between the play, between the, the sort of little trick we're set up with of thinking it's this and it's something else. What is real and what is false when it comes to intimacy? And what does it mean for something to be real or fake? Because even though they're performing a play, and of course they're just performing a play and it's a rehearsal, Bill's tanned cheeks are still a dull brick red and he's blushing and he's having some sort of, in some way, authentic or it's being experienced as authentic visceral reaction. Or, and like the whole ambiguity around what was real about whatever connection he made with Jessica at the beach at the end of the last book, whether thinking it was Elizabeth, whether knowing it was Jessica, does it make a difference? Can he really care about her, you know? And yeah, I find it actually really shocking. Like, I think the first time I read this book or I went from Dear Sister to this, it was like, my assumption was, oh, as soon as Bill finds out what Jess did, he's gonna dump her and that's the end of that storyline. Like the idea of it, he's like, not only still with her after that but like supposedly in love with her is just like so shocking yeah and it's like well yeah he's not in love with her it yeah. sort of reminded me of like how jess was with bruce in book three when bill's around jess he's a bumbling like he can't 
talk he can't be normal versus of course when he's with Dee, Dee right and like it's sort of like when Jess was with Bruce she became also this sort of like ridiculous pathetic figure and like Jess is treating him now the way Bruce was treating her you know like the fact that she like publicly humiliated like it's not a huge humiliation but I noticed like in the first couple of pa- like pages she's teasing him you know at the rehearsal in front of the audience and sort of drawing attention to his embarrassment and stuff and it seems like she's very quickly decided to tone down on the empathy. Yeah. She was starting to practice last week. And she's literally like laughing at him as she, she is luring him to kiss her and then laughing when he is kissing her, even though they're doing it for the play in the first place. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it is interesting. She like tricks him into saying, I don't mind. I like kissing you. And then he gets really embarrassed about saying what he said. Cause he's not, I mean, they're supposed to be in a play. A couple other things about Splendor in the Grass. Again, I've not seen it, but from what I read about it, like a lot of it has to do with like sexual frustration and like kids wanting to have sex and their parents are telling them like not to because their reputation in college and all this type of stuff. And, you know, when we talked about dangerous love and we've been kind of exploring some of the allusions to sexual frustration in these books that I think is very real, I think it makes sense as a more generalized, like thematic parallel in that way. Another thing is that... Judy Bloom's book, Dini, oh, yeah. which came out in 1973, references this. The first few lines have the central character, Dini, explain that shortly before she was born, her mother saw a movie about a beautiful girl named Wilma Dean, whom everybody called Dini for short, and that the first time she'd held her baby daughter, she knew the baby would turn out beautiful and so named her Dini too. And Dini, which I have not read, but have learned about from the wonderful documentary Judy Bloom Forever, available now on Amazon Prime by directors Davina Pardo and Leah Wolchok. And of course, Davina is my sister. That Dini is a book about a few things, including, and one of the reasons it was controversial and has been very controversial is because there's like, I think it's literally two sentences of mm-hmm. masturbation, mm-hmm. although it's not what the book's about, but there, there is some interesting things, I think, that it says around experiencing pleasure in the context of disability and just like teenagers having like positive like sexual agency and experiencing pleasure and that being like a good nice thing which you know we don't have any masturbation scenes in Sweet Valley High so and it's interesting I was noting that we haven't really seen Jessica kiss anybody in a situation that hasn't been at least a little traumatic until right now I could be wrong, but I feel like most of the interactions we've seen between Jessica and men have been really, really bad. This is a moment where she can explore her sexuality to some extent. She can kiss Bill and keep kissing Bill and tease Bill and laugh with Bill and kind of be sexy and provocative. And there's, there isn't that same risk and danger. Yeah, because his pit's out. His pit's, pit's out. He's weak. She can, she yeah. smells on him from the pit, mm-hmm. probably. His weakness and the fact that he is not a formidable adversary for her. He no, was... but that's literally what it is. Like, why do you, do- like, it's like they say, like, when dogs go on their back and they expose their belly to you, it's, they are being vulnerable. Like, that is a, that is a physically, biologically vulnerable position. Really quickly, the drama teacher Jaworski also put an arm on Bill's shoulders, just on the hmm. Perf tracker. I mean, yeah, I mean, Wait, you're watch. okay with that? You're okay with that for Jaworski? I didn't even, I'll be honest, I didn't even flag it. <gasps> Robert, that's an occasion for you to ask yourself some questions and reflect. 
Just because it's the drama teacher, there's a different standard? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, maybe that is what it is. I didn't, I mean, yeah, let's all meet here the same time tomorrow. Don't worry, Bill. He added, looping an arm about his leading man's shoulders. You're doing just fine. Just relax and don't ever take everything so seriously. Yeah, maybe that's problematic. Combined with a conspicuous lack of an intimacy coach on set. <laughs> so yeah, the, the narrative we're getting is that Jessica is quote unquote doing this to Bill to get revenge on him from rejecting her when she previously had asked him to a Sadie Hawkins dance. And for our many Gen Z listeners, a Sadie Hawkins dance was a thing back in the day where they would absolutely upend the sort of laws of the universe Mm -hmm. and let girls ask boys to a dance. And that's what would happen. I mentioned earlier that I feel that part of what's going on in this book is Jess and Liz both kind of navigating the fallout from the previous like all the motorcycle stuff and everything after. Mm -hmm. And I think like one of the things that's notable is that we never see their actual reconciliation or like there having ever been a conversation about any of that stuff that happened. Like, so in the end of last book, Liz bonks her head, goes back to quote unquote normal old Liz, reconciles with Todd and Jess is still at the beach. And in this book, they're they're all great and good. Um, But I think each of them is still kind of working through it in their own way and sort of pulling like they both kind of went to the opposite extremes last time right and now they're kind of figuring out how to land back on their Mm -hmm. what they're used to um and like do they want to incorporate some of those differences or not and i feel like there's some signs that each of them are sort of dealing with that and so one of them is for me on page three when elizabeth sees jessica teasing bill Mm -hmm. and understands that this is not you know she's not genuinely interested in him or whatever which again i don't think she got her heart broken Elizabeth cornered her twin in the hallway after the rehearsal and forced Jessica to meet her gaze. It was like looking into a mirror. And so this is really interesting, right? Because usually often we've had the convention of starting by them engaging with each other with the sort of intermediary of the mirror. In this one, Elizabeth is asserting herself. She's cornered her twin and forcing Jessica to meet her gaze. So we're back to old Liz, but, Mm. you know, remember when we had new Liz and dear sister was the first time she set a boundary about boring clothes. I think she's trying to see what can I Mm -hmm. keep from that. Right. So now she's back to old Liz, but she's forcing Jessica to meet her gaze. And, you know, I think there's a scene later when they're doing the dishes, Liz similarly sort of ultimately ineffectually, but puts up a bit more of a fight Mm -hmm. than usual, or she's like, yeah, I'll do the dishes, but I'm not doing it by myself and you better help me kind of thing. Right. And so to me, it's like, she still wants to keep some of that. How well is she able to integrate these things i think not so well and she ends up going back but yeah but i think that it is interesting that she is trying to assert herself a little bit more jessica like tries to kind of brush it off and be like i'm not doing anything wrong it's fine and she says can i help it if he's in love with me and she says come on jess that's like the spider telling the fly it's his fault for getting stuck in the web and it feels like we're again grappling with these ideas of responsibility and whose fault is what. There are a couple of different moments where it does feel like we're seeing teenagers work through their own morality. Then Jessica says, are you implying I'm responsible? Remember, Liz, I only went out with him in the first place to save your skin. And then they talk about Bruce and Liz is, you know, shudders to remember she had been out with Bruce. The trouble was she hadn't been her normal self the night she had gone to her beach house. And then Jess says, not that I'm blaming you. I know you couldn't help it. Uh, Right. And then she says, after all, Bruce is so disgustingly ugly and unpopular. Anyone would have had to be crazy to go out with him. Right. And Liz says she feels defensive after. I think this is Jessica poking at the idea that 
it might not have been the head bonk that made her go out with Bruce. Because basically what Jessica's saying, right, is it's not the craziest thing to want to go out with him. He's hot and has a lot of things going for him. So, okay. Right? When I first read that, I actually wrote down, Jess has failed sarcasm. This doesn't work as sarcasm. Because it, it doesn't actually work as sarcasm. What it works at is her pointing out that, hey, Liz, maybe you actually did want this on some level. And Elizabeth feels defensive. Elizabeth wasn't sure how Jessica managed it, but somehow Elizabeth always found herself being defensive when it was her sister who was in the wrong. The most insane sentence I've ever seen in my God-given life. For Elizabeth making herself passive. How Jessica managed it. Elizabeth found herself being <laughs> defensive as if she like, was blindfolded, dropped into a well, and woke up and was defensive. How does yeah. Jessica manage it? Getting me in this well. And then Liz kind of gives us the surface reading of the title Heartbreaker and what this could mean. Maybe for Bill, it is a problem. For you, I'm sure it's just one more broken heart to add to your list. Just be careful what you do to him. Okay, we have to get to the introduction of Patsy. Oh my gosh. Are we, I mean, readers, buckle up. So, Elizabeth says, oh, Bill's not going to win an Academy Award for the way he's kissing you. And Jessica goes, oh, my God, Liz, speaking of kissing, looks like you've got competition. She darted a look over her shoulder. Elizabeth followed her glance, barely managing to stifle a horrified gasp. Standing beside Todd was one of the most beautiful girls Elizabeth had ever seen. And he had his arms around her. Elizabeth felt as if the bottom had dropped out of her stomach, slowly, stiffly. She made her way toward them. Oh, hi, Liz. Todd disengaged himself from Miss America's arms as he greeted Elizabeth. Listen, I want you to meet an old friend of mine, Patsy Weber. Elizabeth stuck out a hand that was as limp as a rag in comparison to Patsy's cool, confident grasp. Hi, Elizabeth croaked. If Patsy was such a good friend, why hadn't she heard of her before? Nice to meet you, Liz. Patsy smiled, revealing glorious white teeth and a charming dimple in her heart-shaped chin. She could be a model, Elizabeth couldn't help but thinking. Patsy looked too sophisticated to be in high school. She was wearing a straw-slim skirt, belted with a wide leather sash around her tiny waist, and delicate high heels. Her coppery red hair was cut fashionably short in the back, with a tumble of curls that dipped over her forehead. A pair of slanted green eyes regarded Elizabeth with friendly interest. So basically what happens is Elizabeth is jealous because this girl is so sophisticated and she also seems very friendly and Elizabeth feels very threatened. What's, there are a couple of interesting things to me about this. One is the like unbelievably mean way that Jess kind of tees all of this up. Jess sets Elizabeth up to believe that Patsy and Todd are kissing, that they're all over each other. The language is so interesting. He had his arms around her. That's a hug, right? Maybe. I do want to say, like, yes, it's mean that Jess was like, looks like you have some competition. But to be fair, Liz called her a spider who's entrapping a fly. Wait, wait, sorry, 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 sorry. To be fair, Jess is a spider who no, is trying she... to. No, she isn't. Bill knows exactly who she is now. He knows she deceived him as Liz. I just feel like she's like whipping him around and and like making plans and then canceling plans. I mean, she's not treating him kindly. She's being flaky. She's being whatever. She's being she's thoughtless. She's being manipulative. She's being malicious. Sure. Okay. She's being spidery. As we're going to learn in chapter three, he also is. He doesn't realize it, but he's also using her. He doesn't care about her. He says he loves her. He says he cares about her. He doesn't know anything. He he's, has no connection to her. And he's using her and she's using him. Okay. About the 
hug that Liz witnesses. I think the interactions with Patsy and Todd in this one that Liz witnesses and her whole jealousy thing is kind of interesting because like all of them are ambiguous. This one, I agree with you. The default reading would be like a normal friend hug at a school kind of thing, or at least give them the benefit of the doubt. And then the second one is described as, as her bikini back of the straps are, and I, I'm sure we'll do a close reading, but her bikini straps back aren't done. She's lying on her stomach and he's doing sunscreen on her back. And then the third one is Elizabeth sees them like in an embrace and she runs off and he's like, well, she was crying. I was comforted or something. Right. And so yeah. it's like, like you could say they're all technically kosher, but I don't think that bikini thing was kosher. I don't actually know if this was a hug and I don't actually know what that embrace was like. I don't know. I don't trust him now from that bikini thing. Why is he putting sunscreen on her back with her bikini? But I guess we can go to that later. But I guess I don't think it's nothing. But I think partly what's interesting about it is, again, we're seeing Liz deal with sort of jealousy and what to do with it. But didn't you think that bikini thing was objectively not kosher? Come on. I didn't I didn't know it was going on. I mean, what her strap on the bikinis off? No, I mean, tan lines are a real problem. And I don't know about you, but sun hygiene is of chief importance to me. Also, like the name Patsy to me is so it's just like such a funny like to be so threatened by the sexuality of somebody named <laughs> Patsy is like very chapter two, Ned being annoying. They're literally like talking about doing the dishes, and Jess is like, Why am I stuck with the dishes? And she's like, I have a date, I won't be ready. And Ned goes, Seems like I've heard that argument before. Sorry, Jess, but it would never hold up in court. The twins' father could seldom resist bringing his lawyer's logic into play. Gross. Then Elizabeth sighs and gets up from the table to do the to help Jess do the dishes, even though it's Jess's turn. And she says, "Okay, I'll help you." Right? We're not. You don't want to unpack the lawyer's logic more. We're labeling this lawyer's logic. It it isn't lawyer's logic. It doesn't make any sense. He's just being a dick. In it's a not logic. It's absolutely not logic. It's not logic that wouldn't this, hold up in a court of law. Right. And he very much uses this thing of supposed logic and supposed rationality. Like anytime the girls are like seeking their parents' advice or guidance on something, they'll always be like, well, uh, I'm logical. And so I guess logic is just Can we talk about Liz's sighs? Okay. There's, there's a lot of Liz sighing in this book. And so here, like she sighs when she gets up from the table to scoop up the dishes. And to me, I see this as this sort of like, I don't want to say performative resignation. I noticed that we also see Alice sighing. And like, I think that this, like her sighing, Elizabeth sighed and got up to do the dishes. And then like Alice sighed and got back to finishing her coffee. And it's like, I don't know. That's just what they do. Mm -hmm. The life of modern woman is just to like, kind of be put upon and then just kind of be annoyed by, about it, but do it anyways. Yeah. And then she's like, well, and then she goes, Liz says, well, I command you to just to get into the kitchen. I said, I'd help. But I don't want to get stuck doing it all. And then she's trying to look stern and waves a fork at her. And then they get into the scene of having a soap suds war. And it's like, there is an actual underlying tension here that isn't being addressed. That's being enacted through the playful soap suds war. Yeah. I, the playful soap suds war makes absolutely no sense. So as soon bizarre, as Jessica's, right? what, sorry? So bizarre. As soon as Jessica's back was turned, Elizabeth scooped up a handful of suds and let fly. Not to be outdone, Jessica retaliated with a soapy volley of her own, an attack that left both Elizabeth and the floor drenched. See what you made me do? Jessica gasped when her laughter had subsided. Now I'll never be finished in time. It like almost to me felt like like a performance, like like a pillow fight or a tickle fight that like is like a sexy thing. You know what I, I just didn't feel like it's like we're at the car wash or something with our wet t-shirt contest. Oh, I didn't see it as like that. I saw it as just like, everything's fine. We're having fun. But like, I actually want to fucking throw something at you because I actually have, I'm pissed about this. and I don't know how to say it. It's like yeah. how kids, we talk about how like they work out. They're in this liminal thing and they're 
adolescents and they're growing up and they're trying to understand these more complex situations and how they work through it sometimes with more childish frames of reference. And I think like them having this suds fight because it comes directly after Elizabeth's sort of neutered like attempts to mm-hmm. assert herself with Jessica. It's like, so then she throws soap at her, you know? Mm-hmm. And then they're laughing. Ha ha. It's like, I also think it's interesting that Elizabeth is the one who throws the soap. And in my mind, like my conception of this is like, Jess would be the one to start the soap suds party. And Elizabeth would be like the victim of that. And then Jessica says, see what you made me do, which feels to me very Elizabeth. Like it's like kind of in this way, an inversion of their traditional roles where Elizabeth normally is the one who says, you backed me into a corner. I had to do this stuff. I was in over my head. And Jessica normally is the one who like starts shit. Yeah. Cause like in this book, Jessica's sort of speaking the previously unspoken, which is like, for example, like what she says, when she sort of teases Liz of like, well, yeah, Bruce is so ugly. You'd have to have your head fucking bonked to go out with him. It's like, you actually, you know, in the same way when she says, look what you made me do, she's acknowledging that Liz provokes her passively, right? And so Liz throws the soap at her back when her back is turned. And then she just keeps obsessing over Bill. Poor Bill, you never let up. He probably swam to Tahiti. It's like, Bill's Robin here for Liz, I think, right? Like, she's trying to assert herself with Jessica by like expressing concern about Jessica's treatment of someone else, but it's really about her own beef with her. That makes sense. Because what, what Elizabeth is saying is like, you're using Bill to do all of this stuff. She literally says you're using him as your gopher. You mean? And I think there is a way that she wants to be talking about the way that you're using me, but she can't talk about how, Jess is using her. So she has to say, oh, come on, Jess, enough is enough. Why don't you give Bill a break? He's a really nice guy. What did he do that was terrible enough to earn the fate of falling in love with you? You're absolutely right. Like Elizabeth can't talk about like, I don't like how you treat me. So she does, I don't like how you treat other people because it also gives her the opportunity to be good Liz. Jessica reacted the same last time of like, well, what? I Like how she's like, I didn't hold a gun to his head. She's right. And same way with Robin. Like all I did was take her, she said, can I take your dry cleaning? And I said, sure. I didn't tell her she was my best friend. I didn't say this. Right. And like on one level, she's right. And I think similar to what we've seen previously. And I think we have a key passage. She says, I'm not holding a gun to his head. Maybe not Elizabeth observed, but the way you tease him is just as lethal. She thought of something and a slow smile spread across her face. I have a feeling he'll soon be put out of his misery though. Jessica frowned. What are you talking about? I'm talking about Dee Dee Gordon. Elizabeth went back to scrubbing the broiler pan. Looks like she's got her eye on Bill. That little nobody? Jessica sneered. And then Elizabeth tells her he's giving Dee Dee surfing lessons. And then Jessica gets riled up and, and goes to stop them. So I think here Elizabeth knew exactly what she was doing. She's mm-hmm. pouring gasoline on the fire. If she wouldn't have said that thing about Dee Dee, Jessica would have lost interest in a week or whatever, like how she usually does. And Elizabeth saying that this isn't going to work because he has his eyes on someone else. He doesn't have his attentions on you. And you're now in competition with Dee Dee is provoking Jessica. So Elizabeth is... Again, feigning concern for Bill. What she really cares about is herself. She's she's concerned trolling and actively being messy, getting herself involved and making it worse. And she continues to do that throughout the book. It's interesting because Jessica says in all of this, like Elizabeth says, what did he do to deserve this? And Jessica says, nothing, that's what. He's only getting what he deserves for ignoring me in the beginning, which has so many resonances. I mean, this is only book eight. And yet we could point to several examples previous where someone ignores Jessica and like the punishment for ignoring Jessica is having your life imploded. Like she did it to Enid. She'll do it to Todd. That's what she does. She doesn't like to be ignored. There, there's this moment where Jessica basically makes Bill come over and bring her a copy of the script, even though she doesn't need it. Basically immediately after finding out 
that Bill is going to give Dee Dee surf lessons. Jessica's like, I know how to mess this up. What I'm going to do is I'm going to call him over and make him bring the script, but I'll be out on a date. She's testing her power over him, basically, because Elizabeth has like threatened her power over Bill. And so she needs to reassert her power over Bill. And it's clear that she has this power over Bill. And then Bill's reaction to me led me to write in my notes why is Bill so into Jessica? He doesn't mind waiting in line. He says all sorts of like wild things. Because he's in a fantasy of Julianne. No, I understand that now. But as a reader reading through it by chapter two, Mm -hmm. we're led to be like, why is this guy so into her? Then it says Bill's blindness where her sister was concerned reminded Elizabeth of an animal paralyzed by the headlights of an oncoming car. Thank you. If he didn't watch out, he was going to get squashed flat, she thought. And it's the same thing of like, these absolutely insidious metaphors where the same way Elizabeth loved to tell herself that she was in quicksand and she was in too deep and all the rest of it. She's saying that he's paralyzed. He has literally no agency. He's the victim of this car. And then again, she's just so messy, like getting involved and giving him advice. Like she doesn't need to be doing any of this. She does not need to be doing this. He will work it out. Sorry. (laughs) I'm so annoyed at fucking Liz. But it's what's interesting to me is the way that Liz is reacting to what she perceives to be Jessica's power. And what Jessica is trying to do is assert her power. So in some ways, like Liz is completing the circle of what Jessica needs. They both, it's like they're both settling into their old roles. Exactly. Elizabeth tries to get in touch with Todd and his mom says she's not home. And Elizabeth starts to feel panic as she imagines he may be out with Patsy. We get to chapter three. Chapter three, in my mind, is the moneymaker. It is the crux of the entire text. And Bill ends up on the beach. We're supposed to think he's really upset about Jessica. He scooped up a handful of cold sand, letting it trickle slowly through his fingers. He was remembering another time, another girl. It had been so long and the memory was so painful. He tried to shut it out. But he couldn't do it, couldn't stop the memories from coming any more than he could stop the tears that were rolling down his cheeks. Her name was Julianne. He had gone out with her when he was living in Santa Monica before his parents got divorced and he and his mother moved to Sweet Valley. They were freshmen when they met. It turned out that they had more than surfing in common. It seemed to Bill as if they'd known one another for years. When he kissed her, it was as natural as a wave breaking. After that, they were inseparable. Bill grows to love her more with each day. Sure, they've had their fights, mostly just silly little arguments, but they could never stay mad at each other for long. Bill would never forget the fight they'd had the night of Sue Cuthbertson's party, though. He'd accused Julianne of flirting with Eddie Roth. It probably wasn't true. Later on, he realized he had just been jealous because he knew how much Eddie liked her. Julianne was so upset that she left the party without Bill, grabbing a ride home from a friend. The second she walked out the door, Bill realized how foolish he'd been. He made up his mind to call her as soon as he got home. He never got the chance because Julianne never reached her house. It was raining. The car she'd been riding in slid out of control in a slick curve and exploded against an embankment. Julianne was killed instantly. For Bill, it was like the end of the world. He went a little crazy the night she died. Blinded by guilt and anguish, he grabbed his surfboard and took off for the beach, plunging into the storm-tossed waves. The tide was so strong, he was swept out to sea and would have drowned if a Coast Guard cutter hadn't spotted him in time. They brought him home semi-conscious, muttering Julianne's name 
over and over. What made it even worse was that he felt responsible for her death. If only he hadn't started that stupid argument. If only he'd insisted on driving her home himself. And now we hear a little bit about how he has been working through the painful process of working through this black tunnel of grief, realizing she would have wanted him to live. Things start getting a little bit easier. Gradually, the ache diminished. What I think is interesting about this is it describes his working through his grief with Julianne as if he's sort of like almost on the other side of it in Mm -hmm. a way. And what we talked about at the beginning is that, of course, grief is not linear. Mm -hmm. It comes in waves. Um, And if I could read a brief passage to you from an article called Grief and Bereavement, What Psychiatrists Need to Know by Sidney Zizouk and Catherine Shear from World Psychiatry Journal. Please do. At first, these acute feelings of anguish and despair may seem omnipresent, but soon they evolve into waves or bursts, bursts, initially unprovoked and later brought on by specific reminders of the deceased. If these reactions are prominent, a person may attempt to avoid reminders or over-control stimuli, which can interfere with the normal grief progression. As time passes, the intense sad emotions that typically come in waves are spread further apart. Typically, these waves of grief are stimulus-bound, correlated to internal and external reminders of the deceased. Grief is a fluctuating state with individual variability in which cognitive and behavioral adjustments are progressively made until the bereaved can hold the deceased in a comfortable place in his or her memory and a satisfying life can be resumed. So I think like what we're seeing here is Bill has been kind of working through quote unquote his grief. And yet, however much time has passed, he is going to still be hit with these provoked or unprovoked waves that he must face. Mm -hmm. He stared up at the moon and for an instant, his vision blurred and he saw a face that could have been either Julianne's or Jessica's. He blinked and it was gone. I think it's interesting the way that we talk about kind of the the waves of grief, grief and the stimulus or not stimulus bound. And it seems like he's getting over stuff. And then it literally says the first time he saw Elizabeth Wakefield, he was stunned by the resemblance to Julianne, the same shimmering blonde hair, the same deep blue eyes. He got goosebumps every time he looked at her. But that was right after he'd arrived in Sweet Valley. He still wasn't completely ready to let go of Julianne's memory. That was why he turned Jessica down that time she'd asked him out. He was scared stiff of falling in love again and getting hurt. Jessica, like her twin, reminded him too much of Julianne. So I think that's like a like a really compelling and interesting backstory, a totally believable and understandable like reason why this grief would surge again when confronted with a stimulus. And then also an interesting moment because he is creating like a triplet moment. So we think mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Elizabeth and mm-hmm. Jessica as twins, of course. Yes. And then they have yes. this literal ghost, Julianne, who is their ghostly triplet. Ghostly triplet. Right? Uh, shiver. I've got shivers like I'm dreaming about my dead girlfriend. Yeah, and what and what I think is sort of funny about it is like, you know, with Todd, for example, we talked about like, oh, if someone could confuse Liz and Jess, but they're so different. And and what if someone could mistake them for the other? And it's like, it's so sort of besides the point for Bill, which no one realizes yeah. because like they're totally, it doesn't matter. They're yeah. both being actually a replacement for even this other girl they don't even know about, which is kind right. of funny in a sick sort of sad way. It uh, also reading this made me think like, oh, I wish we had checked in on Bill when Elizabeth was going through all of this stuff because it must have really, really been grief strickening for him that he lost one beautiful, very thin blonde woman to a car accident and almost loses another beautiful, very thin blonde woman. in it. Like, I feel like we should have had somebody check in. Like, is there a guidance counselor who could have been like, well, Sylvia Green. Yeah, where was, where was Mrs. Green? Green? 
Um, but, you know, last time, you know, just like with Robin, we were initially introduced to him as a very one dimensional. Oh, yeah. All, all he is is a surfer. And in this book, we're learning there's more going on. So much more. I mean, he's an actor. He's bereaved. And a damn good one. A really, a I mean, one. spoiler alert, a real good actor. All right, let's keep it moving. Keep it pushing. Now, the next day, we're at the beach. And Jessica is in a bronze, wet look bikini. You better believe I underlined that. What does that term mean? That is a thing. Um, it's like when the fabric looks wet. I, yeah. This this can be for references. I'll show you some pictures. You want me to show you now? No, no, no. I, I mean, I have a picture of it. I know like what wet look means. So I don't yeah. know why I said, what does that mean? I guess I just was like, to me, wet look is like sex. Yeah. And she isn't not swinging her hips for the benefit of her male audience. You better believe, you know, she loves when people catcall her. And again, it's like she smiled. If Dee Dee thought she was any match for the Wakefield magic, she had another thing coming. You know, remember last time we had this whole thing of like, oh, who's the Miss New Butterfly of the Year? And who's the new Firefly of the Wakefield? And who's the new Wakefield? It's like she's reestablishing the Wakefield, you know, the old Wakefield twins identity. And the, well, the way she talks about like comparing the Wakefield magic and that like bronze wet look bikini, which uh, with Dee Dee, who is wearing of all things, a canary yellow one piece, a one piece. Could you imagine? Can't even see her Did midriff. But didn't Jessica observe it actually looked good? She even managed to look alluring enough to make Jessica a little bit nervous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she goes, still, Dee Dee wasn't half as pretty as she was. Why was Bill wasting his time? It's just so interesting that she like immediately returns to this capital of attraction. Like, my attractiveness is my capital. Why would you ever invest in someone who is less attractive than me? So then she butts in. She's pretty good at, like, this is mean girl behavior, but she's pretty good at it. Like, she does a pretty expert takedown of Dee Dee and basically is like, oh, I'd love to join. Like, she does, she is so good at having her aggression be masked that she just says, like, oh, oh, I'd love to join in, but it looks like you're really busy. I wouldn't dream of interrupting. Baiting Bill into saying, oh, you're not interrupting. Maybe I could teach both of you. And then she's like, well, two's a company, three's a crowd. I guess I'll just leave. I hate to butt in. Like she basically makes it hard for Dee Dee to not seem ungracious by not asking her to. It's brilliant. Yeah. Don't rush off on my account. I was just going in anyway. I've been in the water so long that I'm starting to shrivel up. Jessica wrinkles her nose in distaste. Gee, that's too bad, Dee Dee. Mind if I use your board? Like she the gall. even the she, gall. she gets Dee Dee to come up with a plausible excuse for why she should go away. Which Dee Dee shouldn't even give because she's the the should should be the the center of this action. And then but, it's like, ew. I know. It's like, oh, you're so gross. Oh, and can I use your board while we're it's just it's so brilliant. Elizabeth's mad. How could Jessica be so obvious when Bill's doing suntan lotion on her? There's Elizabeth so much gets, suntan lotion play. Yeah. Elizabeth is extremely triggered, as usual. Right. But um, what's confusing gets, to me, sorry, quickly, is there's a gross moment where Todd is putting suntan lotion on elizabeth's back he was in the midst of rubbing suntan lotion on elizabeth's back he paused to kiss the nape of her neck as he oh, lifted her hair i hated that you hate that thing about todd hates that he's gay <laughs> <laughs> sorry i think what this also shows us is that liz is now going through two moments one of todd on her and one of witnessing jess and bill where a guy applying sunscreen on a girl is in the context of a romantic or sexual relationship Okay, or flirtation. Sure. And so when she sees Todd, then like for Todd to do it to her and kiss her in that context shows that it's intimate. 
So then when Todd's doing it to Patsy later, let alone Patsy's bikini untied, I think Liz is in the right to feel uncomfortable when she sees that because what are her references for that? Todd kissing the nape of her neck. Is it going to be kissing the nape of Patsy's neck too? Hmm? I hope not. You know, one of the things we've talked about with Jess is how she experiences her power in the form sometimes of like what she sees as making other people do things, making other people yeah, do what course. she wants. On the cover, we have her finger, you know, kind of pulling Bill by his necklace. We have in this book a few examples of part of the way she interacts with Bill and sort of gets him to do his bidding or, or her bidding or like asks him to do stuff is in through something that in linguistics we call indirect speech acts, mm, which is when you're doing a speech act, which is making a demand, but you're doing it indirectly by like, instead of making the demand, making a, a statement that by virtue of inference or implication the listener can infer that you want them to do something for you yeah for example like saying like oh it's really warm in here isn't it and then like the listener is supposed to infer and be like oh it is warm i'm going to open the window you didn't ask for the window to be open but by making the statement you made you kind of lead a, a skillful listener into doing what you want anyway yes and so jessica says oh gosh all that swimming really made me hungry in fact i'm positively starved she directed a beseeching gaze at Bill. And then Bill reacts on cue and says, he'll run up to the dairy burger and get food. And then she says, oops, would you believe I forgot the ketchup? My mind must be a million miles away. And he gets up to go get it for her. And there's just like a lot of those type of things. And I think what is notable about the format of the way she's doing that is the fact that like, the reason that's a power thing to do and that's like a dominance thing to do is because one of the things about indirect speech acts is it lets people save face. Like it lets someone say, I'm not doing a demand on you. I'm not being in a power mm-hmm. position of you, or I'm not making a request of you. And it also gives the other person an option to ignore it. Mm. Right. Like it's sort of plausible. This isn't that right. So Bill could ignore it. And so she's testing him. Right. So it's especially a power thing because it's like a higher level test. sort of, Right. Um, if we could just spend a very quick moment, she's famished. Her order is of course, a cheeseburger, a double order fries, and a oh. chocolate milkshake. That, of course, brings us to our hit segment, Fuck, Marry, or Kill. Your choices are a cheeseburger, a double order fries, and a chocolate milkshake. What's my lactate situation in this thing? Like, do I have unlimited lactate? I think you have unlimited lactate, my friend. This is actually so hard. Okay. Because they each have problems. Like, none of these... I just got to talk through it. Please. It's hard for me to marry any of these because Mary has to be something I could eat every day. Mm-hmm. Fries I can't eat every day. It's going to hurt my tummy. I love them, okay. but that's going to probably end up hurting my tummy. Chocolate milkshake. I love ice cream. I could eat that every day in terms of I would enjoy it. Mm-hmm. The question is, in my experience with milkshakes, no matter how many lactase I take, it's never really enough. And I am <laughs> going to go ahead and have what we, what the clinical term is explosive diarrhea. Sure, that, of That's going to be a problem. So... Yeah. And the cheeseburger, I mean, again, I like it. Can I eat that every day? No. I almost think I have to, I hate to say this, but I think I have to fuck the cheeseburger, marry the fries, kill the milkshake. I don't know. They're all hard. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I mean, uh, for me, it's very easy because I don't eat meat. So that cheeseburger's a goner. I'm fucking the milkshake. I'm fucking that milkshake and I'm going to love it. And then I am eating a double order of fries every day for the rest of my life. 
You know what? Let me Marry kill the cheeseburger. Me. Let me kill the cheeseburger. Uh, fuck the milkshake. I want. To, I want to switch that because, like, because that's just one time I could take all the lactates, and I probably enjoy the milkshake more than the cheeseburger. Maybe plus I have fries, mm-hmm. so that's salty. So I got some sweet. I got some salty. Exactly. Mm, what a life. Oh. What a life. Meanwhile, Patsy shows up wearing three tiny scraps yeah. of material and a yard or so of string. Elizabeth had never seen anything so daring, except me being pictures of the French Riviera. On anyone but, else, it might have looked sleazy, but Patsy managed to appear both elegant and alluring. So then Patsy says, I want to go in the water. Anybody want to come with me? And Todd's like, oh, I'm hot. I'll go in. And Liz is like, no. So basically, Elizabeth learns that not only was Patsy a, an old friend of Todd's back in the day, but they actually dated and that they actually maybe were even in love. And that actually the only reason they even broke up was because she moved away. We do get introduced to um, Roger Barrett, who has a big crush on Lila Fowler. So we're getting more of this kind of unrequited love. Dee Dee's really upset about Jessica and Bill. Liz is upset about Todd and Patsy. She talks to Enid about it. Enid says, if an old girlfriend of George's suddenly popped up looking like a clone of Bo Derek, I'd be worried too. Of course, we remember Bo Derek from all night long. We, yeah, it was, I, it's just that there's so few pop mm-hmm. culture references in this world. So it's funny that Bo Derek keeps, keeps, keeps coming up. And then there's this whole thing about like Enid's trying to convince Liz to sort of be rational or just like look at the evidence versus what she's interpreting and says like, well, has he actually said anything to you about how, you know, he might be interested in Patsy and like, have you actually talked to him? And Liz is just avoiding it. And she's too scared to talk to Todd about her concerns. She basically picks a fight with Todd and it's ostensibly about Jessica. But of course, it's actually about Patsy. And this is just another way that we see Elizabeth can't actually have the conversation she wants to have. So she's having other conversations. It's just like the soap throwing from chapter one. Todd and Bill talk. And Todd gives Bill advice that basically he should be careful about Jessica. And then Todd, and then Bill seems a little bit annoyed. It says, thanks for the advice, Todd. Bill said, rising stiffly. But don't worry, I can take care of myself. And Todd says, hey, you're not mad, are you? Maybe I shouldn't have said anything. No, I'm not mad at you, Todd, Bill said. As he walked away, he realized the truth. He was angry, but not at Todd. The person he was angry with was himself, only he didn't know why. Bill shows interest in Dee Dee, Jess feels threatened, and keeps interrupting their plans. And so this is, the newest one is the pool party. This is kind of an interesting moment because Bill actually does say, no, I promise Dee Dee I'm going to be with Dee Dee. And then Jessica lays it on thick and all of a sudden Bill forgets about Dee Dee and then blows her off. Yeah, Dee Dee's preparing for the surfing competition. Bill's been helping her train for it. And she's like, basically says like, well, I have to compete myself anyway. I might as well like do some surfing by myself. And then Jessica has this great line. I think Dee Dee's absolutely right. A girl really needs to be self-sufficient <laughs> these days. And I just like love the way that she is able to just play everyone. We're at the pool party. Jessica attempts the famous Wakefield dive, which is just a regular dive. And everybody is like, like not even, there are no flips involved. She just dives into the pool and everybody claps. Yeah, she's a Wakefield, so Wakefield dive. Yeah, I mean, but it just feels like, wow, everybody is wildly into this. There's applause and hoots. Jessica and Tom are playing around and Bill notices that Jessica's ignoring him and a voice in his head reminds him that that's the same way he ignored Dee Dee. Elizabeth comes home 
Ned Wakefield and Elizabeth have a terrible conversation. He says something, I think, vaguely racist, probably. Yeah, Apache Indians capturing people. Um, Not good. Wait, I'm stunned that you didn't mention. Elizabeth was struck, as she often was, by how athletic her father looked. Oh my God, I have notes on that. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I have that highlighted and I wrote gross. Sorry. Her father greeted her as she walked inside. He was sitting on the living room couch, bent over a pile of papers spread across the coffee table. Elizabeth was struck, as she often was, by how athletic her father looked for someone who spent so much of his time at a desk poring over legal briefs. He was tall enough to be a basketball player with a dense... I'm sorry? Oh, like Todd. Todd. Oh, fuck. Ooh, gross. Yeah. With the densely muscled trimness of a swimmer or track star. That is really disgusting. Like, that is really, really fucking weird. Yeah, not okay. So Elizabeth decides that she is going to go out to the pool party. Her hair is up in a ponytail. But she decides to yank the rubber band off of her ponytail. There, with her hair shimmering loose about her shoulders, she looked much more seductive. More like Jessica, she decided. A twinkle of secret amusement creeping into her eyes. And again, we see this kind of moment of Jessica, sorry, Elizabeth trying to renegotiate her identity and trying to reclaim potentially some of the dear sister uh, agent provocateur that she was. She goes out to the party and gives a muffled cry at what she saw. There was Todd crouching over Patsy as she lay stretched in golden queenly splendor. Right? On the chaise lounge. She was on her stomach and the back tide of her bikini top was undone. Todd was rubbing suntan lotion on her back with slow, circular strokes. Not okay. Yeah, I was wrong. I had blocked this out. I do have notes on it. This is icky. I'm sorry. This is not appropriate behavior. Okay, then Todd's trying to talk to Elizabeth. He sees she's upset. She doesn't want to talk to him. She might have inherited her looks from her mother, but her rock-hard sense of logic had come straight from her father. Yeah, I did and not it was love logical for Todd to fall in love with Patsy. I do not love the use of rock hard sense of logic when we're talking about how densely muscled her dad is. Like this is a gross. Jess comes in and talks to Liz. And she Jess... goes, I've I've always suspected he was kind of a rat. Liz wasn't sure she liked hearing Todd called the rat, even if she did feel like boiling him in oil at the moment. Call back to book one when Jess Absolutely. says she's gonna boil Elizabeth in oil. I guess I really shouldn't blame Todd so much. I mean, Patsy is is Well, look at her. What boy wouldn't be attracted to her? Todd and Patsy? Jessica's eyes widened. I didn't know anything was going on between them. Todd used to go out with her before he met me, before she moved away. Then Jessica decides to sort of encourage the suspicion that something's going on with Todd and Patsy and says, oh, I actually have noticed they've been together a lot. It does look kind of suspicious. Elizabeth moaned and buried her face in her pillow once again. How was it that whenever Jessica tried to console her, she always ended up feeling worse? Because Jessica's not really trying to console you, sweetheart. She is playing mind games. So then, inexplicably, Elizabeth goes to interview the man who owned the building her dad's office is in. Because she's been writing this article about job opportunities for students in the summer, and he gives teenagers jobs. I don't understand any of those. There's, it makes no sense. Who should she come upon But Roger Barrett, the one who has the crush on Lila, he is shocked to see her. She is shocked to see him. 
he's embarrassed to be there. And she's like, why are you embarrassed? Like, I'm sure that there are 50 kids who would love to trade place with you. People really want a good job in Sweet Valley. And he keeps being like, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody that I'm working. And she's like, oh, like you have so much ambition to get a job on top of your schoolwork. Ambition, he said in surprise. I have to work. If I didn't, my family wouldn't be able to pay the rent. This is our first character who is actually poor. I actually think this is a really well done moment about the ambition because it shows like class dissonance and just like Elizabeth's sort of ignorance mm-hmm. or like not even, I don't even mean that in a bad way, but no. just like her sort She's... of like upper middle class, like split level home with the pool. She and Jess, when they get jobs, it's to pay for f- extra things for themselves. Right. Right. And like, she assumes that if someone's taking on work on top of everything else, it's because they're ambitious and it's like careerism. And it's like, no, this is survival. Yeah. We pick back up, back up at school. Something truly ridiculous is happening, which is that they are having a special lunchtime play rehearsal where everybody in the cast gets to skip a class so they can the, skip the class before lunch so they can have time to rehearse the play because they're rehearsing for Dee Dee's dad, who is a famous Hollywood agent. So the big kind of mystery for the back half of the book is that Dee Dee's dad comes to see the rehearsal, the first rehearsal alone. And he sees he sees that someone in the cast has the talent to be a big Hollywood star. But mm-hmm. he won't say who because he doesn't want that person to be nervous for opening night when he will come back later in the week with a big hotshot producer. Jessica does this like big show of being like, oh, it, I wonder who it is. It certainly couldn't be me. It's not me. Like, definitely it's not me. Bill is still helping Dee Dee train for the competition. When they're practicing, she she wiped out. She entered the wave a second too late. It was breaking over her instead of underneath her. The board shot out from under her and flipped over in the air. She tumbled backward, catching a glimpse of gray sky tilted at a crazy angle before she went under. Then she was thrashing and spinning helplessly in the churning surf. She panics. Everything goes black. Bill notices and saves her. Mm-hmm. He swam blindly, struggling to keep Dee Dee's head above water. His eyes were stinging so badly he could scarcely see. He wasn't sure if it was the salt from the water or from his tears. And I think what's going on here, this is an important moment for him twofold. I think that one thing that's going on here is he's, I don't know what the word is, not recoup, but the, where he couldn't save Julianne, he is going to save Dee Dee. Mm-hmm. right so not not to make up for but to he's somehow, trying to rewrite his tragic yeah past. change the outcome sort of um and in the same way i think it's also in a way a reenactment of his own experience when he and his grief when he almost drowned remember and he got saved by the coast guard so i think the same way Didi's almost drowning here i think he's also saving himself in a way saving her kind of thing right i think there's this I think this moment is really an emotional unlocking for him. When I read that, like, so he saves her, right? Mm -hmm. And it says, as he bent close to administer mouth to mouth, he became aware of how pale her skin was next to the dark swirls of her hair. How come he never noticed before how pretty she was? And when I first read this, I thought like, oh, that's annoying. Like he saves her life and she's just this like passive victim. And then he notices she's pretty because he can be a saver and he can be a hero to her. But then I thought, I don't, I think it's something actually more deep, which is that that experience in the ocean with him, because it is the sort of reenactment and the rewriting and the, I don't know, redoing of these traumatic experiences. 
something is clicking or unlocking mm -hmm. for him in that that is able for him to now engage with emotion and engage with love in a real way. Yeah. So he can see DD in that way. It, it seems like he was previously locked in only on Julianne or someone who looks enough like Julianne to be her ghostly twin or triple. Um, mm -hmm. And so this has unlocked a moment. At Brandeis, did you take, it was a social class, I guess, with Professor Timmermans? No. He wrote a, a little book called Sudden Death and the Myth of CPR, which is all about how basically like CPR doesn't work and how like, like most people don't actually survive and it's bad. Basically the idea that we have this kind of collective imagination that CPR is like a miracle thing and it saves everybody's life. And if something bad happens, you just do CPR and people just pop right back up. But really CPR mouth to mouth resuscitation, like very, very rarely work. And when they do work, the people like don't return to the same quality of life and it's terrible. Yeah, you may know that in 1996, DM et al. published a groundbreaking article in the New England Journal of Medicine that found one of the things contributing to this sort of mischaracterization that exists in the sort of popular imagination is that there are significantly higher survival rates of uh, on TV depictions of CPR right. than those represented in the medical literature. And there are concerns that this may lead to unrealistic impressions of the likelihood of success with CPR. A 2015 study by Poronova et al. aiming to reassess the accuracy of CPR depictions found a continued discrepancy between actual survival rates and those depicted on television, with shows depicting a survival rate of nearly twice that of reality. When we consider that CPR may be in some cases used performatively, that is to help families feel that doctors have done everything in their power um. to save the life of a dying individual, which is a very, very common occurrence. This raises the question between media depictions and actual behavior of performative CPR. Patients are getting a doubly and compoundedly skewed view of the medical efficacy of CPR, which, you know, may be a problem if it's affecting, you know, advanced care planning decisions and things like that. So basically, Dee Dee and Bill reunite. They love each other. Bill literally says, Jessica who? When asked by Dee Dee, what about Jessica? Yeah, that reminds me of, didn't Enid say like, Ronnie who? Yeah, when yeah. George comes in. Yeah. yeah. Liz is still bummed about Todd, still hasn't talked to him about it. All right, so it's time for the big play. All right, we find out who Dee Dee's dad thought is the good actor. Mm-hmm. It turns out it's actually drum roll, please. Bill, obviously, which we knew all along. We knew it wasn't going to be Jessica. We were never set up to believe it would be Jessica. It's not going to be Jessica. It's Bill all along. Bill now Jessica starts sucking up to Bill again and is like, you're so great. I'm dying to hear all about your plans. What should we do next Saturday? So basically now Jess is into Bill. And is hitting on him. Dee Dee overhears a tiny part of this conversation and thinks that her relationship with Bill is over, which makes no sense because they literally just said they loved each other, but fine. She runs away and Roger is there to pick up the pieces and console Dee Dee. He has empathy, yeah. his empathy and understanding for her. This character we literally hadn't met until today. These two characters we hadn't met until today are having like one of the most honest and authentic and real conversations where Roger's like, I know how you feel. Like I had such a big thing on on Lila, a big crush. Lila? Mm -hmm. Lila. I had a big crush on Lila and it's been so hard. And like, I know how you feel. This is all very terrible. I'm going to take you to the cast party with me. Um, and they like encourage each other. He says, I feel like such a nothing. And she's like, don't be silly. Besides, misery loves company. Let's find out. Yeah. Jess convinces Liz to go to the Fowler mansion for the cast party. 
she immediately, of course, runs into Patsy, who says, oh, have you seen Todd? I was just talking to him, and now he, he like ran out to get something in his car. Wait, Patsy looks stunning in a low-cut halter-top jumpsuit made of some shimmery peach-colored fabric. It sounded hot to me. Me too, I love it. As- especially with her red hair. Like, it sounds like a yes, really set it curly off. red Todd catches Elizabeth in his strong arms. Trapping to- her arms against her sides. It's no use trying to escape. Todd's voice was husky against her ear. I'm not letting you loose until you tell me what's going on. Are you trying to break up with me for what? And then she's like, I think you're trying to break up with me. And he's like, no, I'm not. Me and Patsy are just friends. She's like, don't deny it. I've seen you in your arms. And he's like, what? Patsy was really upset. She just got a letter from her boyfriend in France telling her he met someone else. She was really broken up about it. So I put my arms around her to comfort her. You're the one I love. Patsy and I are just friends. Now, if you still want to run away, I'm not going to try to stop you. I hated this. I fucking hate Todd. His yeah, eyes were gross. dark and liquid with emotion. Don't cry. There's a pen- penalty for crying, you know? Oh, oh, yeah? What is it? This. He leaned down and kissed her, setting loose a flurry of warm sensations in her. It was so gross. What's the it's punishment so- for saying I love you? Ew! Ick. Also, his eyes were dark and liquid with emotion. Dark and liquid like coffee? Coffee? Perhaps? Just say it. Say it, you yeah, coward. He has coffee-colored eyes. She says, I feel like such a dope. And he says, lucky for you, I have a soft spot for dopes. Fuck you, Todd. And I say that as a queer person. Fuck you. So they just keep kissing and kissing. And finally she says, I surrender. Jessica sees Bill and Dee together, is embarrassed. Bill finally absolutely rejects Jessica in no uncertain terms in front of Dee Dee. She says, like, let's plan your celebration on Saturday. And he says, I've been trying to tell you, Jessica, I can't make it on Saturday. And she goes, oh, no problem. We can just as easily do it Sunday. In fact, that might even be better. Sunday is out too. He put his arm around Dee Dee, pulling her close as he stared into her eyes. Same with the weekend after that. You see, Jessica, I'm going to be pretty tied up from now on. And then we're basically ready for the cliffhanger. So Patsy and Tom end up together. Then Kara is being is threatening Jess and that she's lost her magic. Kara says, what about Roger? She says it cattily. Look at him. He's been sitting over there in the corner by himself practically the whole evening. I'll bet he could use some company. Lila groaned and clutched her stomach. Ugh, don't make me ill. I wouldn't dance with Roger Barrett if he were the last boy on earth, she declared. Unfortunately, just as she said it, the record that had been playing ended. In the Mm. lull that followed, Lila's voice carried across the room, every word audible. I love We've it when that kind there. of thing happens. I love a record there. skip or a scratch or a, oh. I just, I love, love, love that moment. Roger turns blue or red, sorry. His his Adam's apple is working above his collar. Jessica feels, Jessica couldn't help feeling a little sorry for him. A little glimpse of empathy. Yeah. Even, even Lila looked embarrassed as Roger twisted out of his chair, bolting from the room as if he just discovered it was on fire. Elizabeth glowing as she walked in on Todd's arm was just in time to witness the execution. Poor Roger. Looks like he's been put up before the Fowler firing squad. What would Lila do if she ever discovered Roger's secret? She wondered. All her sympathy went out to him. Roger's crush on Lila was worse than hopeless. It was positively heartrending. Roger and Lila have big surprises in store for them in Sweet Valley High number nine. Love on the run. I think number nine is actually called Racing Hearts. Oh, so your book also says Love on the Run and you have crossed it out and written Racing Hearts? 
I didn't cross that out. Some a previous reader of the book did. And I think I checked my actual books. I think the next one is actually called Racing Hearts. I think that's yeah, it I is have. definitely. And that's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Maybe one of our eyes and ears can let us know where we can do, Google it. But do you have any like feelings, suspicions, or hopes about what's gonna happen next book? Well, it's confusing because it was once called Love on the Run and now it's called Racing Hearts. And I imagine that Lila and Roger are going to end up together. And I do hope, I don't know how, I hope that somehow Lila's family pulls Roger's family out of poverty. (laughs) I think that would be a great, nice moment. I mean, we just got introduced how poor Roger's family is. Wouldn't it be great if we could have like a deus ex machina of Lila's family just like funding everything and now Roger doesn't have to work anymore or something. I think that'd be cool. Listeners, Pardo is making a face that can only be described as... indescribable (laughs) like there's anything i say yeah don't say anything thanks for listening to sweet valley hive hosted by robert marks and rebecca pardo for more check out our instagram at sweet valley hive theme song by yesi and artwork by elliot carroll